This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Monday, June 17th. How long does ABC plan to drip out scenes from the Stephanopoulos interview with Trump? We've had more leaks on this thing than the latest Guardians of the Galaxy at Comic-Con. I think I first started seeing some clips of this Stephanopoulos-Trump interview uh, four years ago when Trump was descending the elevator. Okay, not that long, but it really has been almost a week of a clip here and a clip there last week, and we played it on the show, when Trump said he would likely take dirt on an opponent from a foreign source. So here yesterday was how ABC's This Week hyped that bit of information. They have information. I think I'd take it. That comment could change the calculation for Democrats on impeachment and pressure Speaker Pelosi to act. Yes, the answer to a hypothetical question about openness to foreign research in 2020 could move the needle beyond the actual literal revelations about what he and the campaign actually did do in 2016. (laughs) Yeah, the hypothetical's on TV in an interview, so let's forget the actual. Then over on CNN, those guys played a bit of tape from the interview, which I guess is going to air tomorrow. Here is how CNN anchor John Berman sets up that tape is extraordinary. In it, he's answering questions about whether or not some of his financial records will go public, but just watch what happens Mm. in the middle of this answer. And so here's the clip from the Stephanopoulos interview that he's talking about. At some point, I hope they get it, because it's a a fantastic financial statement. It's a fantastic financial statement. And uh, let's do that over. He's coughing in the middle of my answer. Yeah, okay. I don't like that, you know? Your chief of staff. If you're going to cough, please leave the room. Okay, so you heard some of that. Let me summarize what's going on because it's maybe a little muddy without the visual. Mick Mulvaney coughed. Trump orders him out of the room so that he could take his answer again. And then the ABC producers, or maybe it was just a camera operator, accommodate Trump's request. Okay, do you want to do that a little differently then? Yeah, we just changed the angle. Okay. Yep. Thank you. So at some point. Then back to the gobsmacked CNN panel. Did you see that head shake there in the middle? This, this, this is no jest. He was seething. Berman then throws it to David Gregory. There's something else that I don't know that people fully appreciate. I mean, everybody says that Reagan or Kennedy was a real TV president. This guy is a TV president. And you yeah. know how you know is that somebody who's in the middle of an answer for a television interview stops and starts the answer again because he and he, in this case, is thinking about a soundbite, mm-hmm. not realizing they're going to play protracted, you know, portions of this interview, almost as if it's live. But the idea that he would stop and restart an answer means that in his mind, it is so cinematic mm-hmm. that he is thinking about being on television all the time. Yeah, Pretty extraordinary. Are you joking? Are you kidding me? I'm not going to get all high horsey on you and say, why were you not talking about kids at the border or Yemen? But... What is the big deal about what we saw? Yes, it's that Donald Trump is president, but the actual machinations of saying, all right, get out, I want to get a clean take. I mean, in radio, that is called a pickup. The journalists in the room were reacting as if they've never had to take a bit of tape again or an answer. Yes, it turns out Donald Trump is relatively adept at television. He's not good at anything else about the presidency. Something has to explain the 43% approval rating. This is just overall silliness. We have 
all these panels on TV. Here, they're criticizing Trump about being savvy about TV, but they're also calling for Mueller to testify because if he testifies, that'll be on TV and nothing matters if it's not on TV, say the people on TV. It's just a self-fulfilling prophecy or maybe a self-fulfilling cacocracy. Stop, guys. Just stop. On the show today, I spiel about attacks on oil tankers in the Middle East and how that definitely shows that we got the Iranians just where we want them. But first, speaking not of oil tankers, but of tankards of oil, Darren Dochuk, historian at Notre Dame, is out with a new book about the relationship between oil and religion, Texas tea and theology, petrol and praise, extractive industry, and the spirit of Christ is within me. I have gone too far. I am getting high on all the fumes emanating from the conversation I had with Darren Dochuk, author of Anointed with Oil. Oil has always had an almost mythological power over us. And what is myth but a cruder word for religion? The sanctity and holiness of oil is the subject of a new book by Notre Dame history professor Darren Dochuk, Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Professor Dochuk, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Mike. Good to be with you. So oil is obviously an extremely important product. And as with any extremely important product that one's livelihood depends on, people will necessarily tie in extra significance. There are many churches on the coasts where it's Our Lady of the Sea or there's, you know, farmers uh, integrate religion and the earth and tilling the soil with their messages of faith. How is oil different or even more extreme? Well, you're correct. Uh, You know, oil itself, its property is unique. Uh, Certainly through generations, uh, its appearance has always kind of surprised. Uh, So unlike coal, for instance, uh, where working coal mines is, is more predictable on a daily level, there's something spectacular, uniquely spectacular about oil that, again, kind of begs for a type of interpretation and imagination that is otherworldly in many ways. Also, the sheer, you know, financial power of this industry also, I think, outshines others. And and, and there, too, I think, warrants uh, or certainly conjures up this, this kind of uh, mythologizing. So the book paints a couple of or lays out uh, a couple of strains of religion and a couple of strains of the oil business, and there's a correlation. So you have the sort of mainline Protestants. Um, John Rockefeller was a Baptist, right? Correct. And he was he owned Standard Oil, and by some estimates, is the was the richest person the world has ever known. And then you have wildcatters, and they may be more like some evangelical evangelical sects that are less based on a structured service and more based on a personal relationship with God. Why don't you lay those distinctions out for us? Sure. Uh, and that's a good description of them right off the bat there. So, uh, so yes, we, you know, we, we think of big oil uh, as homogenous and uh, what that clouds over is the degree to which oil is split into different sectors. There are competing sectors, the two that are really the most contentious and the driving force, really the dramatic tension of my book, is that which pits major oil against independent oil, small producers, or as I say, wildcatters. 
Initially, of course, the oil industry came into being in the 19th century, mid to late 19th century. John D. Rockefeller was a, a wildcatter. He was among those who was to pursue new discovery wells. He also made a name for himself in refining, which also set him apart. But he saw the chaos of the early oil fields. Uh, and that chaos was justified by the rule of capture, which basically was a legal code allowing independent oilers to chase crude with abandon and to drain wells, uh, drain pools as quickly as possible. And that is also going to translate uh, into their radical evangelical views, which are going to become increasingly radicalized, uh, hyper-individualistic, uh, espousing one's personal relationship to God, one's personal relationship to the land. Uh, and those uh, two sectors, both in the church and petroleum, are going to uh, compete for authority throughout the 20th century. And I think in some surprising ways uh, lead to some important and I would say up to this point hidden political contest through through the century. Were the wildcatters, you know, normally in this story where you have the big established uh, multimillionaire, billionaire, I don't know if that word existed then, but Rockefeller certainly was, mm -hmm. the opposite to him would be the plucky upstarts and we're supposed to root for them. They're supposed to be, you know, the, re the rebels who didn't play by the rules and still made their way. And yet in a lot of ways... Uh, the facts of what the wildcatters did and who they were do not fit that narrative. Unless, they're, unless they do, unless you think it's, this is looking at it through a 2019 lens where we think about things like environmental costs. So, yes, uh, and, and I think this is getting at your question, the wildcatters uh, would always kind of cherish their pluckiness. They would celebrate that as a virtue, as really the quintessential free enterprising spirit of American capitalism. Uh, and throughout the 20th century, certainly most wildcatters would have to be plucky. You know, if you're thinking of the East Texas boom of the 1930s, for instance, I mean, we have thousands, over 20,000 wells controlled by these small producers. Very few of them are actually going to enjoy uh, the wealth that they have long dreamed of, of via crude. But some will. And so even though they're going to sell themselves as the plucky upstarts, uh, several of them are going to become super rich, uh, almost if not more than kind of the Rockefeller clan, uh, and so are going to be able to sell their own kind of populist democracy with uh, their great uh, monies and wealth backing them. I've read biographies of Rockefeller, and I very much understand or can begin to understand what his place was. Your book does point out that as important as he was in terms of the U.S. economy, the oil industry, cultural organizations, he's as important uh, for the for the church, right, for mainline Protestantism as right, well, and right. that's been a bit under-examined. But I do have a lot of mm -hmm. questions about the Wildcatters and those of their ilk. You know, Rockefeller was engaged in a lot of rent-seeking behavior. Rockefeller was establishment, and at the time, the establishment were the robber barons. He was a robber baron. So were they the corrective? I guess the question is, societally, should we look at the wildcatters as having done a service to America mm -hmm. as a whole? Well, I guess that depends from uh, whose perspective you're, you're approaching them. I, I think in terms of Rockefeller and John D. Rockefeller Jr., of course, too, who's going to be even more influential in the church. 
Uh, they certainly saw their own work of consolidating and bringing some semblance of order to one of the most chaotic industries in America at the time in terms of their own kind of social gospel uh, of providing Christian order to society. Wildcatters, of course, uh, aren't going to view it that way. They're on the side of the losers and they are barely surviving. We can also make a case, of course, though, that the wildcatters uh, in their own reckless abandon, uh, their own kind of end times chase of crude uh, is going to be the most damaging. Uh, certainly, I think environmentally uh, throughout the 20th century, they're going to, by necessity in their minds, uh, reject uh, or, or fight against uh, some of the most important conservation measures that are instituted by the government, by the industry. Uh, and to the present day, their, their desire, their, not just desire, but their need, their economic need to chase this natural resource uh, and to open up new fields for their own financial sustenance has, of course, put us in this place today where, where this has created uh, great difficulty in terms of the environment and our own, you know, grappling with climate change and so forth. Let me just say, too, uh, you know, we can't let major oil off the hook there either. So anyway. How has the religion of the United States oil patch become or influenced uh, national politics or national religions? Religious politics of the Southwest have always kind of embedded fuel and family politics uh, in one kind of agenda. Ronald Reagan succeeded at bundling those together in 1980. Uh, he promised not just to restore kind of the traditional pioneering family values uh, that Southwesterners in the oil patch had always adhered to, but promised to restore their custodianship of uh, the oil patch uh, to allow them to drill, drill, drill. We're seeing that today. Uh, I think Donald Trump's uh, administration is following Reagan's uh, strategy to a T. Uh, and so, as a result, we see today, I think, a real potent uh, kind of blending again of, of kind of wildcat Christianity uh, and the politics of the Republican right. Now, you also write about peak oil, and it has always, it has always struck me that people who uh, believe in peak oil, you don't believe in peak oil a little. You're fervent about it, right. almost religious in your convictions. And yeah, there is a, uh, there is a relationship to millennialism. It's a little bit different because there's no church. Peak oil is it's the idea of peak oil and worrying about it is, of course, the church. And also, unlike other religions, let us just say that there is more objective evidence. But uh, how to, you know, how far do we go? Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe you're a professor of oil and a professor of religion, so you're going to see everything in these terms. But I thought it was apt. <laughs> how far should we go in thinking uh, that this is there's almost a religion religious fervor to the concerns about peak oil? Right. Uh Peak oil works uh, in both ways. Uh, the, the way that interests me is, uh, you know, American evangelicalism really in the mid to late 20th century becomes deeply tied to premillennialist theology, the, the idea that Christ is going to return uh, suddenly uh, amid chaos and that our world is in decline, the world is going to soon end. So this is, again, crisis thinking. And it lines up with, with the kind of the crisis thinking uh, related to peak oil. Uh, so why is it that evangelicals once again, get animated in the 1970s, concerns with peak oil, concerns that America has lost uh, its reserves or its, its ability to acquire oil. Uh, and evangelicals interpret that through their own premillennialist lenses and says, yes, indeed, uh, oil is going to run out. 
our own control of oil is going to run out. Uh, so what needs to happen now is for the government to let us drill, drill, drill. Uh, they are also hearing messages that uh, deny uh, climate change, that deny some of the destructive kind of outgrowths of the very industry that they are, you know, determined to, to prop up. And so to extract themselves from that is perhaps even more difficult than we can imagine. And we only understand that, I think, if we take religion seriously and take seriously the way in which oil has uh, helped define that religion itself. Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. The author is Notre Dame history professor Darren Dochuk. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This was a good fun and privilege. And now the spiel. So here's the evidence that Donald Trump's toughness with Iran was working. Okay, that, that was the argument that was being presented last month and the month before for quite a while ever since the Trump administration endorsed its maximum pressure campaign. It's what the defenders of that campaign within the administration told us. Here was National Security Advisor John Bolton on Fox News in late April. The fact is the president's policy on Iran has been clear well before I arrived in the administration. It is to put maximum pressure on the regime to get it to change its behavior. Uh, and I think it's working. And I think that's what they're worried about. This talking point continued. Here was Secretary of State Mike Pompeo on Fox and Friends a month after that last interview. So ultimately, the sanctions are working. The question is, what do they do next? And then, just three days after that, here was Senator Lindsey Graham on Guess Which Network. It was Fox. Why is this happening? The maximum pressure campaign against Iran is working. Uh, you can't buy oil from Iran anymore without being sanctioned yourself. And the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, the henchmen of the Ayatollah, now are subject to sanctions. They're a terrorist organization. So President Trump is putting a lot of pressure on Iran. They're trying to break our will. And this is an effort to deter Iranian, Iranian aggression, not to invade Iran. The effort to deter aggression, which was working, their aggression was deterred. So what happens when the aggression has not been deterred? Because it is now seemingly in full flower, as with attacks on oil tankers in the Gulf of Oman. Well, the hawks within and supporting the administration's position went from pointing to a lack of attacks as proof that their maximum pressure campaign was working to a whole new yardstick to judge that their maximum pressure campaign was working. From lack of attacks to now, the presence of attacks also proves their point. Here's Louisiana Republican Steve Scalise on Meet the Press yesterday. Our sanctions, by the way, have been very effective. Mm -hmm. I think that's why you're seeing Iran take action. And here's Mike Pompeo in a briefing to the media soon after the Japanese tankers were attacked. Iran is lashing out because the regime wants our successful maximum pressure campaign lifted. This is what they call the unfalsifiable paradigm. What would show the sanctions are working? Well, if the Iranians weren't attacking. So then what happens when Iran attacks? Oh, that proves the sanctions are working. If when Graham, Pompeo, Bolton, a month or two ago, were citing the diminution of hostile activity as a sign of progress, then logically, the increase in hostile activity could not be seen as justifying the policy of maximum pressure. And yet... Of course, it is seen as that. In fact, it is seen as total justification of the policy of maximum pressure. 
Because think about maximum pressure. What do you get when you apply maximum pressure? I'm not talking about foreign policy. I'm talking about in a, in a cooking situation or to a water balloon. It pops. Pressure is a unit of force. Force per area, in fact. By giving force, you get force back. And neither is proof nor discredits a theory. It's pretty much physics, a physical inevitability. Now, I do believe that misleading arguments to justify a policy are bad, but that doesn't necessarily mean the policy is bad. Some good policies have been justified by bad arguments. In this case, I do believe Trump's maximum pressure campaign is bad. I want to be fair to him. I give a lot of credence to the idea that Iran was hurting financially, and that pain did cause a little bit of a disruption in the terrorism supply chain, if you will. Hezbollah goes on austerity. The Houthis take a haircut. But to enact that pain, it comes at a cost. It's a cost that is just elided over by the hawks within the administration. In a way, however, when John Bolton says that the Iranian attack on Japanese tankers is according to U.S. intelligence, When he says, oh, it shows that our policy is working, he's right. Because John Bolton has wanted a war with Iraq ever since his mustache has been in short pants. His policy is not to use force to make Iran back down. I mean, it'd be nice if they did. He doesn't believe they will. The policy is that the application of force will be met with an opposite force. And from these acts, perhaps the hawkish heart sings at such a prospect. Perhaps a greater military engagement will be needed. Lindsey Graham is eager to confront the mullahs. Tom Cotton stands at attention at the prospect of that. It is the wind beneath John Bolton's wings. The only question is what our belligerent-sounding but peace-avowing president wants. Will he take bombast to the point of actual bombs? Bolton, Graham, seemingly Pompeo, certainly Cotton, and the hardliners are into applying pressure, not just on the Iranians, but on the president as well. Privately, through Fox, and via sword-rattling rhetoric on the Sinclair Broadcasting Networks, and in the right-wing blogosphere, and on talk radio. Their use of force is designed to force the issue. And we know when the issue is forced, it will, of course, be justified as the evidence, but also the exact opposite of the evidence clearly demonstrates. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They believe the vicious vitriolic attacks on Taylor Swift's new song show that her message of needing to calm down is working. T.J. Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. As such, she has a rule, a cough, a slight throat clear. You could retake that. But if any sputum is produced, that stays on the tape. The gist, the most productive aspect of this administration is Mick Mulvaney's cough. Oomperu de Peru and thanks for listening.